You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Jerry Parker, Mort Siebert and I, Niels Kastroblasen, where each week we take the pulse of the global markets through the lens of a rules-based investor. And for those of you who are regular listeners, our conversations are intended to keep you focused and inspired to continue your rules-based investing journey. And if you're new to the show, we hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity to check out the back catalog and listen to some of the past episodes that you may have missed. Jerry Mortz, great to be back with you this week. How are you doing? How are things where you are? Things are good. Glad to be back. Thanks for having me. I've enjoyed listening to the podcast. It's the first thing I try to to do every morning, uh, Monday morning uh, when I wake up and get right into it, see what's going on. It's been a blast. I've missed you guys, and uh, you've had some very good quality stuff out there. I've really enjoyed it. Appreciate it. How are you doing, Moritz? Doing great. Hey, Niels. Hello, Jerry. It's great to have you back on. Yes, absolutely. It's always a lot of fun. Now, I was looking at sort of what to pick up in terms of a market wrap this uh, week, and I thought of uh, the year as a whole, and it's kind of a paradox that we're winding down this in many respects, difficult year, certainly when it comes to the pandemic and uh, our day-to-day lives have changed a lot. But actually, the capital markets are closing out on a relatively quiet note. The bond market continues to benefit from the Federal Reserve's buying and there seems to be no expectation that the Fed will reduce their purchases uh, anytime soon. And that's especially the case now that we see that the uh, 10-year note and the US, for example, have come under a little bit of pressure in early December. And of course, the Fed continues to talk about the no inflation rhetoric. And that will, you know, we'll see how that all pans out. Not all observers subscribe to that, of course. And if you look at the things that matters to us, maybe in our day-to-day lives, we certainly see some kind of inflation. But of course, with the worsening of the health crisis, certainly over here in Europe, and I did notice yesterday that uh, the UK came out with some really worrying news about a new strain of COVID that seems to be 70% more contagious than the previous one. Of course, governments will continue to pass relief bills to support millions of workers who are being sent out of the unemployment or sent out to unemployment, I should say. So that really means that there's going to be more government debt next year and it'll be sold to investors who are already showing some kind of balance sheet indigestion. But of course, to avoid unwanted spikes in the yields, we know that Fed and ECB and BOE and BOJ, they just have to expand their balance sheets. So this year has been trying for all of us and especially on those with family members that were not uh, able to survive the virus. But we hope, of course, that the vaccine is successful in eliminating the virus and the world economy can come back to some kind of normalcy. Then it'll be up to the central bank's mission to return their balance sheets back to some state of normalcy. How they achieve that, I think, is anyone's guess. Now, Jerry, that was a long... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Not much of a market wrap here, but just something I thought uh, was interesting. It's been a few uh, months since you were here, 
and actually the trend environment has become quite interesting as we closing the year. So bring us up to date what's going on in your portfolio and the markets that you uh, track before we dive into some of the great topics that you shared with us that we look forward to discussing. Well, the trends are back and there are tr- lots of things are trending. So it's been a good past couple of months. It uh, just reminded me of how dependent we are on the markets and how down I can get and uptight I get about my approach and am I, do I know what I'm doing? Is my system, are my systems good? Are my entries good? And then all of a sudden you get overwhelmed by these markets and good or bad, it's been good recently. So I'm overwhelmed by all the trendiness. I'm long every, almost every single currency, almost every grain market, the LME, still long silver and gold. They're kind of underperformers, still have some interest rates on and a few long stocks, of course. So not a lot of diversification. I I think I could give back a lot of profit fairly quickly because I have small profits in lots of different markets. And if they all, if all the currencies turn against me or the LME, I could have some bad days and we're not out of this year yet. So (laughs) I'm very skeptical about this year and I'm very surprised every morning when I log in and I see all these uh, p- positive uh, trends continuing. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think the lesson of 2020 back in February and in November and December is the markets are what's driving the performance and you're just along for the ride and try not to get in the way and get crushed in February. And don't overthink, you know, put those trades on just like uh, when we had the shorts in February, we all of us were saying, those who did well just sold the breakouts. Don't think, sell the breakouts. And here recently, just get those positions on and don't even concentrate too much. Can you imagine Bitcoin and some of these amazing trends we've seen where you're arguing about, well, I got in a day before, you got in a day later, and I'm so much better than you. You know, this is crazy. Just hold on and uh, try not to get out too quickly and don't screw up these trends that the markets are giving us after we've been waiting for so long. Yeah, no, absolutely. And March, you revealed last week that uh, things are looking up on your side as well and I have a feeling it might have continued based on what Jerry said. So uh, bring us up to date. Yes, luckily it has continued and I can only echo Jerry. A couple of weeks ago, it just started to click. You know, I had this period of just moving sideways and then also a period of just grinding lower. I remember like September, October, where kind of like every week where we've been on, I reported back to you that, you know, I've lost another 50 basis points and the next week, another 50 and yet another 50. So it was just that slow grind lower and nothing really happening. None of those positions really working. And this has changed now. It has changed five, six weeks ago, I think for me. Um, with, you know, soybeans and a lot of the acts moving higher, a lot of the metals moving higher. And I've been on the wrong, on the right side of those trends. And, you know, Bitcoin, of course, has been a, a strong mover in the past couple of weeks. But um, even though I'm trading Bitcoin futures in my trend program for the full year, Bitcoin is not the biggest winner. It's not my most profitable market in the in the portfolio. It kind of like ranks in the middle of the field. Uh, because earlier this year, of course, you know, it also had a massive move to the downside, which produced losses. But WTI used to be the biggest winner for almost all of 2020. This is no longer true. Biggest winner is now, I have it here, it is iron ore. 
followed by euro dollars, followed by Canadian bank bills, followed by canola, and then it's WTI, and then there's a couple of bond markets. But anyway, cutting a long story short, I'm still enjoying being long the emissions contract, long the soybeans complex, um, had made some good money being long the South African rand. Canola has been good again. So yeah, I'm I'm up about 1.6% for the year now. And uh, two weeks ago, I was down. So let's see. You know, it, uh, we're now closing in on Christmas and, and the, the festive period. As we all know, within three or four more business days, all of that nice profit could go to the other side again. And, you know, from so from that perspective, I always want to remind myself that the year is still very young. A lot of things can still happen. Indeed. And, and, and of course, I know a lot of people, they look at the year as some kind of magic period that we all have to ideally be pro- profitable in. But of course, it's just a random 12 months rolling period which really don't mean a lot uh, in the bigger scheme of things. Great to hear things are working out really well on your side. We are lagging behind, I have to report a little bit, at least in our trend program. We're still down for the year, not by much, but still a little. So we did also have a good week this week, both in our trend program and in our volatility program. On our side, really, Jerry's mentioning the weakening dollar, so long the currency, the other currencies were really great. Commodities doing well now in uptrends, especially the grain sector led the way on our side. Metals uh, enjoyed a good week, an okay week, nothing too spectacular. And then we had kind of a muted reaction from soft meats and energy, uh, really, uh, in the last uh, five trading days or so. What well, What's interesting to me is, and, and I know, Moritz, we talked about it over the summer, that the trends in commodities are really interesting to watch because... The sector as a whole has been difficult for trend followers in recent years, but in the last couple of weeks, when I've been listening to some podcasts of people who are deep, deep into the commodity markets, you hear them talk about the emergence of a new commodity super cycle. And that's really been uh, interesting to uh, to follow because commodities have been trading generally downwards for quite a long time. And we know that trend-following performance tend to come from the long-sided trades. So uh, wouldn't it be great if commodities, in fact, are heading into some kind of upcycle that's going to last a little bit longer than than we have seen in the past? Uh, I think that would be great. And of course, I think you and I, Mart, have talked about how both our models have really been reducing short positions in, in the commodities and gone long in many of them, maybe with the exception of, of energy, where there still might be a little bit of a short bias, but it's coming to an end if we continue like this. On the financial side, currencies and equities did okay for us uh, this week, but we did suffer some losses in fixed income, but that's where we are. Of course, the week also, we saw another S&P uh, all-time high, and actually the VIX, despite that, remained pretty elevated. And of course, Tesla is coming into the S&P. And um, I think Tesla call options, as far as I picked up, are one of the most actively traded single name options at the moment. So interesting to see what effect that has on the overall volatility landscape for the S&P. And uncertainty, therefore, remains slightly elevated, even uh, towards the end of this week. But all in all, also a solid week for for us on the volatility side and for the year. So we'll see. Now, we do have a couple of questions that came in from Michael and from uh, Jim. But I think before we 
do those. I think we should dive into some of the things that Jerry has pointed out because I think it ties into some of the things that um, a lot of people are thinking about this year. And to me, 2020 has really been a year of kind of risk management on so many levels, whether it's our trend-following systems or our infrastructure suddenly having to cope with remote working. Uh, So why don't we start with that? Um, And I would love to hear your opinions about what's the important parts in in the risk management we do. And um, Jared, do you want to kick it off with some of the things you um, had thought about? Uh, well, interesting, because one of the things I had uh, posed as a question we could discuss today was, what is risk management? <laughs> yeah. I'm always confused by that um, for the sort of classical pure trend following I kind of want it to be mostly my stop losses and my breakout entries and exits, and of course my diversification, as maximum diversification, as much as I can get, long and short. But I guess that's not exactly what everyone means by money management, risk management. I guess there's more to it, but I don't really know what people really mean by it. But I know that in March, in February and March, that uh, I was pretty shocked by the volatility and the speed of the losses that and the profit give back. I think I was up uh, 9% for the year, and then I was down in, in a matter of days. So I did reduce my positions discretionarily, let's say. And I think that any kind of non-system trade, reducing positions when you lose money, I think that's a great idea. That's uh, turtle, turtle Trading 101, reduce your leverage, reduce your positions faster than you lose money. If you're down 10%, cut back 20%. Uh, that's 1983. I think that it's a rule and it's not part of the system. It's a little, you can call it discretionary. I certainly don't think that you can avoid discretionary uh, by saying, oh, I have a rule. Well, it's a rule and it's not based upon much sample size. It's just uh, you living life and understanding that uh, the name of the game is to survive and not uh, lose all of your capital. And when crazy things are happening, cut back and continue to do the uh, the system trades your your breakouts and your stop losses, but use the position sizing as the variable. So you don't make guesses, you don't get too discretionary. But any sort of non-system trade is sort of uh, kind of discretionary, in my opinion. And I know that you guys are fairly critical about hearing that traders had sort of done discretionary things that maybe your you guys your firms didn't do, and thus you suffered in uh, performance. But uh, I do think that it was uh, a lucky move, and it did at that time have some material impact. I made other mistakes, but I guess doing those uh, massive cutbacks did help me. But I would say that uh, in my whole career, it's a huge loser (laughs) because I think what I've essentially done over the years is just trade too large for my personality and for my client's personality. And then I would do these cutbacks uh, too frequently. And then they always cost me money until probably this year. No, I mean, I'd love to hear um, Moritz's opinion. I think from my point of view, and and, and you're right in some sense, Jerry, that, that I probably have voiced some critical thinking about that. And it's only because we keep saying we test what we trade and we trade what we test. And as soon as you start doing things that you didn't, is not part of your back test, it worries me a bit. 
that's the critique I have, that we're deviating away from it, even though the intention of of reducing risk is is very honorable. And I think, as you rightly say, the key point in this game is to survive. And I think the great thing about 2020 is actually that for the first time, we really got a chance to test our all the risk management modules that we've been building in the last decade, where there's not been you know a crisis exactly like this. And all the inputs we throw in, in terms of, you know, volatility and correlations, what happens when they just explode in a matter of days or weeks rather than months? All of that we got a chance to see firsthand. What I find interesting about what you say, Jerry, is that you say it always costs you money. So I wonder why you want to do it if you know actually that it's better to just follow the system, so to speak. Have you ever thought about that? Well, yeah. It's definitely better to follow the system, but you need to follow it. You can't overtrade and trade too large. And then you hit these drawdowns that you're very unhappy with. Your clients are unhappy, you're unhappy. And we know that if it's 50, okay, everyone's unhappy, but sometimes it's 12, it's 20. And so I know that a friend of mine did a study, uh, turtle, the turtle systems. Uh, he did a study and he said, Rather than doing the cutbacks, they would have made more money just trading smaller. Oh, I agree 100%. Mm. But you know, things happen that have never happened before. And this is the point of risk management. Well, it wasn't in the data. Come on. Exactly. Dude. No, you can't say it's not in the data. And then I think the only part I think where there could be some disagreement is it doesn't matter if it's part of your system. You don't get a pass that it's really a very infrequent thing that you have no business really paying attention to the back test. And so if the back test would show that you've never needed to do this, well, all you need to do is say, well, I'm glad I don't have to trade smaller when I'm at critical drawdown levels. And then you, you have that one period where, oops, I'm out of business because I didn't preserve capital and I relied upon the back test. So I think it's not safe to rely upon the back test using these systems with thousands of trade sample size, certainly it's not safe to look back and say, over very few instances where these great systems of ours traded with proper leverage really don't need this heavy-handed money management and interrupting the, the systematic approach that we have. So you can't, it's not safe to pay attention to history. Yes. What are your thoughts, Smarts? Well, first off, I, I didn't feel the need to reduce my positions in March or April this year. It's probably my stomach wasn't hurting enough and I was emotionally stable enough to just, you know, follow through and, and continue with what I had on. I remember when we uh, when we were in March and April, Niels, we spoke about, you know, certain people out there completely stopping trading, taking positions completely off and taking a hiatus for like, you know, a week or a couple of days. And I wasn't, I wasn't too big a fan of that. And I still am not because it's kind of like you're reacting discretionarily to, um, to uh, yes, a new context, a new environment, a new data point. But, you know, you could do that so many times. You know, you would do that when crude goes negative. Well, that's extreme. You can do that when Bitcoin goes parabolic. Well, that's extreme. You know, the markets throw so many extreme things at you all the time that you could actually, you know, start to think about overriding your systems so many, many times that I really want to reduce it as much as I can. And to me, and this is what I've said when, you know, Jerry, you were you were still a regular 
installation on our show, I do have that thing that is not part of my rule set, which is avoid ruin. So I cannot tell you what I am going to do if I'm down 50. I may throw in the towel. I may trade one contract. I, I, I don't know. Maybe I'll take a break. I cannot give you an answer to that right now because I don't know how I will be feeling then when that happens. I'm not saying if, when. You know, I, I really want to prepare myself for that, but it will be uncharted territory for me. But until I get to that point, I'm trying to be as stable with my system and as, as tight and as you know, firm with all those trades as I possibly can and, and not try to allow, allow too much uh, discretion there. Now, the, the other thing I want to say is, and, and I agree with Jerry there, is what is risk management? And I've never found a definition of risk management where everybody would just nod their head and say, yeah, that is risk management. And it's kind of like, you know, this it, it's written down there, it's in a white paper, this is risk management, everybody says, yeah, that's it. There's everybody has a different risk management. So, you know, for me, it starts with position sizing. That is kind of like, well, you do the trade and you have to size the position, right? And then there's entries and exits, which is, you know, stop loss and trailing stops and and these type of things. And honestly, this for me is kind of like the Moritz risk management context. That's almost all of it already there. Right, diversification becomes a part of that, but I do that through my system design. Now, then there's other people that say, well, hey, Maurice, you're not really managing risk. You're just sizing a position and you have exits because you need to do vol control. You need to do value at risk. You need to look at your margin to equity. You need to look at your open trade equity. You need to look at concentration across sectors. And if either of those things uh, reach a threshold, then you need to do ABC. And you need to reduce your positions when your valued risk is too high, and you need to reduce your positions when your margin equity is too high, this, that, and the other thing. And I don't do that because to me, this is, it is not part of my risk management framework. And I think it, for instance, when you think about, you know, margin equity stuff, the exchanges have increased margin requirements during the US election. There's an event coming up, all of a sudden your margin equity goes up only because somebody decides that it should be going up because, you know, it's either Trump or Biden. But what the heck? I mean, this is not this is not my style of trading. I, I really do not want to care about that stuff. So for me, this is not part of the risk management. And again, here, I try to keep it as simple as I possibly can. And I think with position sizing, which really is, this is the key, right? I mean, get the right, get the appropriate position size on and have a stop loss. And I think if you do that, then it's very difficult to get killed. And if you don't get killed, then you've probably succeeded at risk management. Perfect. Yeah, that's, that's perfect. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that we kind of have three slightly different takes on, on, on that topic. Not so much the risk management. I think we all agree that risk management is, 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 is many things to many people. And in a sense... I think one of the strengths about the CTA community that we are part of, and I think 2020 has proven that again, is that you haven't really heard of any, as far as I can tell, major blow-ups once again. Even though, as Jerry rightly said, I mean, what happened this year was not in the data. We had no way of preparing our models for what came yet they actually cope pretty well. And whether you took a little bit of risk off or you didn't, 
we're all going to end up in terms of the larger managers uh, who've been around for a long time, probably in the ballpark of minus five to plus 10 for the year. Well, that is a pretty darn good result, in my opinion. And for me, this is the really important part. A lot of people say, talk about, oh, well, maybe CTAs and trend followers didn't do so well this year because there are so many trends. And of course, you have to dig a little bit deeper to realize that these trends weren't that easy to capture because they were going in one direction for a while and then they made a U-turn and they all went back to the opposite side, so to speak. But what I, I'm pretty sure when in saying is that on the 23rd of March this year, at the low, when things were looked horrible when you looked at your screen, the protection that you really want as an investor on that day, I'm pretty sure that most CTAs gave that to you. Meaning, if you look at our positions at the end of March, they were in the direction of, and this is what I really think that people should think about in terms of protection. You should, you should wish us to protect against the central banks not showing up on the 23rd of March, or if they did, failing. Because to a large extent, a lot of strategies and a lot of markets and a lot of investors this year were saved by central banks, in my opinion. But if they had failed in what they managed to do, I think CTAs and trend followers in particular would have shown, you know, all the protection that you would need. Because at that time, our positions, albeit we took some losses in getting there, our positions were getting into the right protect in, in the right direction. And I think that's a very important part, which we forget because it didn't pan out that way. And we had to kind of turn around and suddenly put risk on again. Anyways, I think that's just how I see it. Well, that's a very good point. I mean, that is a huge point. And it, just in case you didn't mean it the way I interpreted it, I will tell you the way I interpreted it. Sure. And that is that... Uh, <laughs> When you do something very dangerous and you end up surviving, this is not a lesson to continue doing this dangerous thing, you know. And so just as you said, we came in with those right positions, poised, and the S&P rallied. It doesn't mean that you don't need those positions. We weren't right to have it. That uh, It was 100% perfect just by the mere fact that it rallied and, and all the stock index people who are long only are long all the time, they survived. It doesn't mean that they didn't make a huge mistake with the lack of diversification and their lack of trailing stops and stop losses and shorts. So I think uh, it has nothing to do with it. You would never, in any other walk of life, you would never congratulate someone and tell them it was unnecessary when they avoided catastrophe. You know, you would say, you better learn from that. You got lucky this time, and the next time you may not be so lucky. And, you know, there's, uh, there's points in life, uh, points in the markets in 2008 where they didn't get very lucky. Exactly. Yeah. Nope. That's a great way of, uh, of uh, summarizing it, Jerry. But I would just say also that yeah. another thing that happened, I probably haven't been very clear on this or transparent because uh, it's, you know, I changed my mind dramatically in February because I started to understand that I started writing down all the periods in time where I going back to the 90s, you know, the 80s, where I had poor performance and I was unhappy with my performance. And, it, and I, my initial reaction was, 
you've got to have better systems. And I think that almost on every one of those situations, that was the wrong analysis. The analysis was you're trading too large. And if your stomach is hurting, then that, look there first. And so when I cut back those positions in February, I, I immediately reduced my leverage for the rest of my life. I'm not going to trade that large again because it uh, forced me to make the cutback. And uh, when it necessarily wasn't that bad. And then number two, I totally disagree with myself. And I have said on this podcast many times, trade more stocks. I dramatically cut my stock exposure in, in half for the rest of my life. So I'm not wow. making these decisions and then reverting back. You know, I'm like, you know, how, how can I have been in the markets this long and this many years and I'm still making these type of mistakes where, yes, I like the stocks. Yes, they don't seem as correlated. But yes, unlike almost any other sector, they can all go against you dramatically at the same time. And there's nothing you can do about it. And I had almost virtually no shorts on. So if you're just going to randomly make these changes to avoid the pain, that's uh, something different. But we've all changed our systems and had made what we would consider to be material improvements to, based upon our research. And then someone could come up to us and say, hey, done. You're not following the systems. Well, it's only a problem if you're going to revert back. But if you're going to go forward with a better strategy, one that's more suitable to being able to execute your system the way you should, then I don't think that that is problematic. There's so much to unpack, and I want to bring Moritz in on this one, because last week, I think, or maybe it was a couple of weeks ago, Moritz, I can't remember now, we talked about how 2020 for some was a, a year where you really learned something and, and you had some new data to make changes on. And Jerry clearly has made some huge changes on what based on 2020. And of course, you came from the point of view, which I also agree with. Well, it's just it's just another year, right? It's just one more data point. So I think so. I think what what you just shared there, Jerry, is one so grateful for your transparency on this one, because uh, I think we can all learn from someone who's been doing it uh, for as long as you have. And uh, I think it's so valuable to uh, hear what you said. But it also goes contrary to a lot of the things that we've been discussing on the podcast with some of the guests. And, and as I said, I remember our conversation a couple of weeks ago, Moritz, where we talked about, is this a year where you've learned something new and you make some changes? I try to learn something new every day if I can. I fail at that mostly, but I am open-minded with these data points. Like you know, when when you're in the in the moment of now and you're in the middle of the pandemic, then you perceive that as a massive threat, and it's you know it is a, a it is annoying, it is inconvenient, it's it, it's out there, and central banks are printing money. Yes, we know all that, right? But there's human beings have a tendency to overinterpret these things from a data perspective. When you just look at the data, then you get every day you get a new data point for all of these markets. And I think you have to really, it's it's you know, it, it's one thing to say that this new data point that you're getting is now really special. It is so special that it forces you to make changes. And it may be. But it may also not be. 
And when you just step away from it, say, say, move yourself, beam yourself four years into the future. The pandemic is gone. You've been vaccinated or you haven't been vaccinated, whatever. Let's just say it's no longer a problem. It's not out there. The V is in. It has happened, right? You run a back test. That V, that period is now part of the data set. And I think it's going to be very unlikely that you're going to backtest a system that goes until, say, from the 1990s to March of 2020. And that would say, oh, you know what? I'm going to stop my backtest there because when I look at the data, this looks so special that now from 1st of April onward, I need to trade it somewhat different. You don't, well, I don't do it that way. I look at all the data and I design a system that works with all of the data because if I didn't do that, then I would have to go back through time and go like, oh, here's um, Black Monday and here's LTCM and here's tech and here's, you know, commodity super cycle. And here's the financial crisis and here's the euro crisis. And every time I would have to stop my back test and say, I'm changing that, I'm changing that, now I'm doing this. So I, I, I don't want to force myself to do that. And I want to accept the data points as they come in. And the other point I want to make is the data points that have come in this year, like when you look at that, it, I think from a statistical perspective, they are more normal, more normal than the ones that usually come in, which are leptocurtic and they cluster around the mean. Like our market data return distribution, as you all know, is not a normal distribution, right? It is skewed, it is tailed, and it has all of these, you know, weird outliers in there. So any data point that comes in with like, you know, plus one basis point, minus 10 basis points, plus 12 basis points over and over and over again, in a way that is more of an irregularity than a normal distribution that would allow for like, you know, these autocorrelated larger moves, trends, you know, plus three, minus three, plus, plus, plus three, you know, in a row. I think that's fairly normal. So I don't want to move that stuff out. I want to eat it, accept it, work with it, and definitely give myself time before I jump to conclusions. And I know it's, and this, this has been part of my critique, I guess, in March, if I remember that correctly. I don't like it to read about funds that report in their investor letters to clients who are now disappointed because, say, they've lost, I don't know, 15% in April. I'm just making the number up, right? And then as a mea culpa, they write this letter and get like, oh, we really underperformed and um, we didn't do well and this is on us and uh, we're really sorry and apologies. And that, but it's not going to happen again because we now have made that change. And going forward, you know, there's going to be this different and that different. So rest assured, we're doing research on your behalf and this isn't going to happen again. Really? Give yourself some time, man. Honestly, I mean, don't make that change in the heat of the moment. If you think you need to make a change, and if that change is statistically valid, it's early enough to do it in two years, I think. The way we trade, we're not high-frequency traders. We don't need to change your system on a Monday in order to be successful on a Tuesday. Our stuff works. It works, right? I can make these changes after giving them really good thought and really good analysis and seeing how things pan out. And maybe in two years down the road, I look at this V and go like, all right, yeah, it's been a V. It's been painful. But who says that it's going to reappear in that exact same, same shape or form? So everybody does it in a different way. I do it in my way. You do it in your way. But I don't like these uh, ad hoc changes. 
Gary, I, I feel we need a, a comment. <laughs> well, I agree with all of that. I think, um, you know, I could not think of one reason for not just this year, but for many years of uh, disappointing performance, maybe relative and absolute, you know, versus uh, competitors and versus the S&P. I just never saw a reason to change my systems. And so I like them. I think they're fantastic. And um, not this year, not any year. But I do think that uh, trading smaller, and I had probably too much hope, wishful thinking on the amount of diversification I could get from stocks and making those decisions to sort of go back to what I used to do. It's stocks would be 15% and not 30% of my portfolio. And uh, then the amount of leverage I was using was something that was making it very difficult for me to enjoy life and continue to follow my systems. But I, d I definitely don't dismiss uh, what Moritz has said. I definitely think that in a couple of years, I may look back and wonder like, uh, well, you know, like, like Moritz just described, maybe I should trade stocks more. Maybe this is just built into my, as a weak, weak human that I'm going to vacillate back and forth on some of these issues. I'm trying to segregate it to some degree and say, oh, this discretion or this change of heart that I had is more acceptable, but I didn't really change my systems. But maybe that's not the case. There is a trader, uh, a firm out there that is in uh, Switzerland that I really like, and uh, they trade a lot of stocks. And uh, they had poor performance, obviously, in the first quarter. And I thought, wow, maybe they will be like me and trade fewer stocks. But no, they didn't. They didn't care. They just stuck with it. And for some reason, they trade a lot of stocks and not single stocks, but indices. It's, uh, I think uh, Neil's passes. No, I get that uh, their monthly newsletter now. And then I went back and I looked at all the stocks that I had on in February. And uh, they're like, great, uh, if I would have not changed anything. You know, would have had a bigger drawdown possibly, but they have performed really well. The amount of volatility that I saw in March, in February, may come back if I would have had that same portfolio on. But you know what? Those I probably would have made up all of those losses and just have better performance than I do now. So um, there's there's a couple of things in what you said, Jerry. And first of all, I think actually something we can say maybe if we are to be a little bit generalist, and that is that the trend-following programs that coped better in March are probably the ones that are a little bit lagging now where we're coming close to the end of the year. And those who suffered a little bit more in March, maybe because, as, as, as you said, Jerry, that there were more equity or they were slower maybe to react, they're doing better now um, at the end of the year. So I think that's an interesting thing. But I think there's a lot of things that both of you um, have said. And and another thing about risk management slash diversification that we all often talk about, and we were talking about this off-air before we pressed record, because, and, and you both alluded to it when you talked about how things are going, where you said, yeah, right now, things are looking really good. Pretty much everything is working, right? And I think this bring, just reminds me of something that we've talked about before, because I've always felt that we're trying to um, we're trying to diversify a lot. Of course, that's part of what what we do uh, as our risk management. 
But now we're again seeing this kind of um, situation where everything is moving in the same direction as, as you, Jerry, said. It makes us vulnerable to maybe a big drawdown at some point if it all changes. However, it's also what's needed to have good performance. We need what I have called in the past conviction or in this case we need our positions to be somewhat correlated from time to time without that much diversification in order to make the money that we need to make it's rare that just one market or two markets makes i mean it could happen um but it's rare that one or two markets will make all of the performance we need so i think that's an interesting contrast that we're seeing this year as well well i mean i think uh, i would prefer that uh, the currencies have a good run, and then the then later in the year it, it rotates to interest rates. Then later commodities, sure. and then later stocks. And it may happen one of these days. It's not like we need it or want it. It's just what's happened in the past. And so, uh, but there has been times, and there have been trades. Uh, I would say that uh, I, I recalculated the Tesla trade, and uh, you know when I was first trading. Uh, the short-term turtle systems, uh, Andrews 20 in, 10 out. Uh, the the big trade, the outlier was 20 ATRs, which is now with these long-term systems, that's kind of really small. I mean, uh, the big trades now are maybe 100, 200 ATRs. And so uh, even with my really small unit sizes and small trading, the Tesla trade is for me about 10%. One trade, and then there's some other ones out there in the data not that long ago that, you know, if you let it go 200, 300, 400 ATRs, now we're not out of Tesla, you know, and it could turn into a much smaller trade. Uh, the long-term exits are wonderful because you don't get stopped out. They're bad because you get back a lot of profit sometimes. So, but it is possible, uh, and it is in the data. I guess it depends upon how large you tr your trade and then how your look back period. But uh, the Tesla trade uh, right now is a year's worth, 12%. That's pretty nice. Yeah, yeah. that's nice. Yeah. yeah, definitely. And it has been pretty exceptional, of course. I think you're the only one of the three of us that trades Tesla, uh, Jerry, and I don't follow it that other than the headlines. But was Tesla a trade this year from a trend-following perspective where you actually were in all year or were you out at some point because you got stopped out from from the uh, volatility or and 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 give backs that that the stock saw i definitely didn't i definitely wasn't able to stay in the whole time for my entire position and this is a really good thing to to talk about because um i think it just shows the importance of sticking with the system and having these long-term exits and then not paying attention to the drawdown and so I went back and I looked and it had uh, the, the initial breakout, the ATR was low and it peaked out about 50 ATR profit, which is nice. It dropped 48 sure. ATRs <laughs> and did not hit the 100 day low, 125 day low. So for me, it was still a good trade. It went back up, of course, and, and then it had a similar volatility and, uh, scariness and drawdown and being concerned with drawdown uh, would have made you have a second exit that would allow you to preserve that profit or limit that drawdown. Then now it's at all-time highs and that 100 and 
75, 200 ATR trade is that size if you just use breakouts, possibly, and a, a reasonable look back period. And one of the reasons is because what the computer sees and what we all say on Twitter, we may not be able to do it in our own life, but it says, do not give up that entry ATR. Once you give it up and you get out, then if it goes back to the highs, you have a new, much expanded ATR, a much smaller position, a whole different trade. And so if you want to make the 200 ATRs, mm. you better be willing to sit there with that original very, very small $2, $2 ATR at the entry many, many months ago and sit with it and be bold and be strong and go with the volatility and not fall target. And I think that's what I, another lesson I think uh, we keep reminding ourselves is this is probably why long-term trend following will always exist because it's so hard not to, you obviously want to do something about that volatility and having it that pretty nice profit and risk and being willing to give it all back. But since there's so few people who are willing to do that, I think that that probably helps us in the future. And the, and the computer says, it's wonderful. Stick with it. You can't improve upon it. Your discretion will not make it better. Yeah, very interesting. I can't remember. You don't trade Tesla, do you, Moritz? I can't remember now. <laughs> You're catching me. I do and I don't. Ooh. I do not trade Tesla <laughs> in my uh, trend-following program. I, you know, I still like the idea, though, of trading the single stocks. Um, some of them. You know, I, I think I'd be... Um, I haven't completed that research yet. I'd be very picky about correlation patterns and these things. And, and as we know, you know, correlation tends to increase massively uh, toward one during periods like March. But I mean, I can certainly see the uh, the benefit of, you know, having stocks from, you know, completely different industries, completely different sectors and, uh, and, and trade their trends, you know, some tech stocks, some energy stocks, some, you know, material stocks. What what you know what what I still research on is you know to what extent is that possibly better than trading the sector futures which by the way are liquid right there's uh, spider sector futures which uh, are available to trade not only in um, on the S and P but also in other indices so you can also you know break the basket of the S and P or whatever index it is that you're using up that way with less granularity of course but also maybe with benefits and liquidity liquidity benefits so. So I still want to have a look at that. And I'm not done with it yet. It's just because there's so many other things on my on my table and it's, you know, it's it's a pile of stuff. So I'll I'll get to it. But I do trade Tesla and I've I've traded it once before. That's a trade that you know about. It's probably about a year ago where I sold a call option on Tesla. Maybe I've been lucky, maybe not, but that turned out to be a winner. And so on Friday, I did short Tesla. It's completely outside of my trend portfolio, so I'm just mentioning it here. It's it's you know one little little bit of a play around thing, but and maybe not so play around. I don't want to make it sound that way. I do have reasons to do the trade, and I think I do have a statistical body of I don't want to say evidence, but Tesla will enter into the S and P on Monday, and the rebalancing trades have happened Friday on the close or toward the close and they have happened around that point in time. That's not an exact like, you know, 
one minute where you can say now all of the rebalancing trades need to happen. It depends on how much tracking are some of those, you know, tracking funds and uh, closer tracker funds will allow. I think some of that volume will probably also still go through on Monday. But as you have seen, ever since the announcement of the S and P entering of the of Tesla entering the index, um, Tesla has outperformed. So there's all the usual front running going on, you know, by hedge funds, you know, buying Tesla out of the inclusion date, selling the basket against it, and then reversing that trade, probably on Monday or a couple of days later. But point is, every time you have these rebalancing trades, and Tesla may be special, so I don't have a very large position size because Tesla has a very large weight. There's never been a larger entrant to the index, right? There's never been a, say, more hyped stock, a, a stock that has such tremendous upside call option volume participation by retail traders. Like, you know, it's, it is it is massive. So I want to be very, very careful with that sizing there. But statistically speaking, and that's why I have to trade on as a quant, Stocks that enter the index tend to underperform going forward. And stocks that are excluded from the index, so you know the bunch of stocks that move out of the S&P 500 or the stocks that move out of the Russell 2000, the stocks that go out of the DAX and that go into the MDAX, so whatever the case may be, right? Statistically speaking, those tend to be outperformers. So it's a flow-driven environment. That's one thing. And the other thing is that Tesla is now part of the most liquid, most arbitraged index basket complex that exists in the world from a stat-art perspective on the cash side, but also from a volatility dispersion trading perspective on the volatility trading side. Tesla is now part of the S&P 500 and that market is ruthless. So um, I'm not sure if it'll just be able to you know, do another 8x from where it is now. So... I have that little short on, playing that trade, expecting Tesla to underperform going forward. And I do not have it on to have a long-term short because I do not have a view on Tesla, like absolutely zero. I don't know, nothing about Tesla. But I wanted to show some profit. And if it does, then uh, I'll get out of the trade and, and that's it. This has been a fascinating conversation today already. I, I have a feeling we might go a little bit long. We'll, we'll, we'll see. But I think a lot of the things that we've talked about are a little bit of a paradox to some degree and actually there is a concept of holding the tension of opposites and those people who can hold the discomfort of paradox are truly the most transformative leaders among us. That's something that I overheard actually uh, heading to this uh, recording from a very well-known world-renowned researcher about you know humans and 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 vulnerability and and all that stuff and uh, i think to some degree i mean that's exactly what trend followers and some discretionary traders for sure that's probably one of the things that that maybe sets sets it apart to some degree that we can hold either through rules or through just uh, incredible uh, mindset some of these opposites within us I think that's a nice segue to another thing that um, Jerry had written about, uh, or not much, but you've certainly written a, a key word, which is Bitcoin. Because again, we see Bitcoin, I think this week, make new all-time highs. And we, on one hand, we I think we 
probably all agree. I don't I can't remember now, uh, Jerry, whether you included Bitcoin in your portfolio or not. We know Jerry, uh, sorry, Mort has it. But to me, I mean, as a trading market, I fully understand why people would trade it. I still have my skeptical uh, rooted reasons why I think it's a little bit... Um, I wouldn't say it's not for me, but, but I'm skeptical about what drives the price of Bitcoin, I have to say. This week it came out on Bloomberg that maybe we have another whale among us, this guy, Eric Peters, a quote-unquote uh, kind of a CTA type who linked up with a very large hedge fund and and now they're building a large position in Bitcoin and maybe that's enough to drive the market up. Who knows? But it certainly has been on a tear like, like Tesla, that's for sure. Uh, you know, uh, before I talk about Bitcoin, uh, I have hundreds and hundreds and thousands of emails that I send to myself, you know, in my sent box, where I just write down things I'm thinking. So it's a big book here. So if anything happens to me, George, I'll send you my password so you can get into my sent box <laughs> and write this book. But uh, one of the things that I wrote is don't be skeptical. Do not be skeptical. Do not drill down. I can't tell you how much money I've lost just personally being so skeptical. Apple, Google, Amazon. It's just so easy to say it's, most of these things are not going to work. But I teach my stepsons. I'm like, just take $500 and buy all of these new stocks. And, uh, and it goes to zero. But you're going to get some thousand percent returns in life. And I think that's tr certainly true of trend following. Just don't be skeptical. It's not worth it. You're gonna if it goes to get you, it's thirty bips. I mean, uh, Moritz had a tweet about uh, it's way more risky. I, I can't paraphrase it, but it's, it's way more risky not to have a position in something than to have a position in something. It makes no sense whatsoever. Do not drill down. Just be a surface person. I hear about it in the news. People like it. I'm I'm buying it. I mean, that's that's what a good trend follower should be thinking. Uh, personally, having fun with their uh, non-trend stuff and certainly with the trend stuff it's in your portfolio and that's the most important thing was bitcoin in your portfolio not a not a bigger decision could you make uh, maybe you could get away with you know we're all going to choose 15 or 20 or 100 different stocks to, to trade if we're trading the single names that's random but look soybeans is in your portfolio right and bitcoin it's a future put it in your portfolio it's there it's waiting for you but once again I got a call, you know, uh, from relatives when Bitcoin was down 2000 over Thanksgiving, I guess. Did you get out of your Bitcoin? <laughs> That's a hell of a drawdown. And so, you know, the problem is when you do the back test with these long-term systems, they make a lot of money. But there's all sorts of drawdowns like that in there that are very painful. They can't be right. You cannot, it cannot be right to sit through Bitcoin minus 2,000 in one day. Can't be right. Go and find something that works in the back test. Uh, no, you just got to sit with it and not worry about it and not concentrate on that drawdown because you've already determined that this approach is great. It makes money. And uh, in my opinion, of course, the most important risk metric is I'm on average going to make $3 by risking one. Yeah, no, I, I think those are great, great points. Great points indeed. Any thoughts from you, Moritz, since we did touch on Bitcoin? Yeah, don't get me started on that. But um, No, no, not, not too <laughs> no, much. Not, too, not too many points I'm not points going, today. of course, but yes, I mean, the, the, 
what I did say is the risk of not being long is uh, greater than the risk of being long. And, and I stand by that, like from a pure trading perspective, whether you like the market or not, whether you like the Ether or not, by the way, the CME is going to come out with a with an Ether yep. futures contract, right? So let's see how that trade, let's see how liquid that is. But say you are in the camp of, hey, Ether is really bad. You don't understand it, therefore I don't want to trade it. I can't accept that from a from a pure trading point of view. It is a market. If that market is um, beneficial to my portfolio because of its correlation characteristics, why not? Don't overthink it. Put it in, right? Risk a certain amount of money, small amount of money, give it a go. Uh, it can only make it better, I think. What I want to say about Bitcoin is, uh, from uh, also technically related, is um, I have, by the way, stopped trading the CME futures contracts. I'm still trading Bitcoin in my trend portfolio, but I'm no longer trading the CME futures contracts, even though they are the most liquid uh, futures contracts out there. But they also, um, in, in a kind of like similar way to the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, they traded a massive implied funding basis, so massive premium, right? Which is why on twoquants.com, we've explained that cash and carry trade, which we've done a couple of times in the past. Um, two weeks ago, that basis was, again, around 35% or something like that, right? So that's annualized. That's a very, very steep contango of that futures contract. And there are now other products out there that you can trade. Of course, you can trade spot Bitcoin if that's what you want, but then, you know, it's not on your FCM statement, it's in a wallet. But there's other tracking, professional, institutional-grade tracking products out there that don't have that premium that you can trade, that you can buy, that you can sell on a daily basis. I must say, for once, Germany, Switzerland as well, is uh, fairly innovative in that space. There's a couple of ETPs, ETNs, fully collateralized by Bitcoin available. Most of them, by the way, now in Germany, two in Switzerland, I think, one large one in Sweden. So those products are there. And uh, rather than paying that high, you know, contango, that high funding premium, I'll just uh, go trade them. Cool. Yeah, I, that bothers me quite a bit because I've been reading your blog and this is uh, problematic. So I agree that that's something. I'm just making notes to figure out a better way to trade Bitcoin. So it's a uh, that's scary. Those, those, that number you said. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. We got a couple of questions in from uh, our uh, community that I think we should dive into. One of them is from Michael. Michael writes: As I'm based in the U.S., I obviously use the U.S. dollar as my base currency. When you guys trade foreign instruments, do you trade them in their native currencies or convert them back to your base currency? I assume that you convert to your base currency in terms of determining your inverse vol position size, but not in terms of measuring the trend. But doesn't that leave your positions open to a huge currency fluctuation? For some instruments like short-term bonds, the currency moves would be so much larger than the move in the bond. So I wonder how you probably measure the trend and the risk. Arts, do you want to tackle that? Or I think what we all agree on is that actually we, the signals we generate are just based on the price. So it doesn't really matter what currency it is. But you're right, Michael, that in order to trade, say, a German Bund, you may have to put up some euros at the exchange, but that's only for margin purposes. And if you have a profit, you can convert that profit back to your native currency. Is there anything else you guys want to add to that? 
I, yeah, I think you mentioned the key things there, Niels. Uh, yeah. if, if you take an example, let's say the Nikkei, none of us is, uh, none of us, neither you nor Jerry nor I have a base currency of Japanese yen. You have either Swiss francs or dollars or euros in my case. So, but I look at the Nikkei and I look at the JGB in yen terms, right? I look at them in their native currency and then I take a position in that local currency that is appropriate to the risk I want to take in my base currency. And really the only currency exposure I have is once that variation margin starts piling up, either positive or negative, but I do not, and maybe this is part of the confusion or part of the question, but when I, as a euro-based trader, trade a JGP futures contract, I do not have JPY currency risk on the notional futures amount of that futures contract. That is not the case. It really only pays me a variation margin in Japanese yen, a couple of thousand yen, a couple of million yen, whatever the case may be, and then this, by the way, is another, you could make that rules-based, you could make that discretionarily. I make that discretionarily. I don't have a rule. You know, I do it like once a month. I look at, you know, what are my currency positions? What are the balances in the different currencies that I trade? And and then I either convert them back or hedge them. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, I agree. I, I would just add that uh, there is a little bit of slippage. You know, I don't, I risk uh, a certain number of ATRs and I limit my losses, let's say to 30 30 bips or 60 bips. And so maybe if I don't really pay attention to that yen, and so maybe I lose 32 bips or 29 bips. So I'm not really paying much attention to those small differences that I don't have um, with uh, the US dollar based markets. Sure. No, absolutely. Final question uh, today is uh, from Jim, Jim, who we saw in, in New York uh, at our live event last year. Judging by what I'm seeing this quarter, I wonder if Jerry's single stock trades are doing better than the diversified commodity FX portfolio. While almost everything is being whipped around, except for Bitcoin and stocks, I wonder if Jerry ever thought of making a solely equity-based portfolio and does the need for diversification outweigh the proposed benefit? Of course, Jim will hear this question after we just talked about what Jerry decided to do with the equities, which was not to trade more of them, but... Any thoughts on that, Jerry? Right. I, I've traded stock only before. See, one year our fund made 60%. I think that was 90, no, 13, 2013. I think the S&P was up 30. We made 60. And it was yeah, pretty much just due to the leverage. But I was trading uh, that portfolio with less risk than the diversified portfolio. So six units in the diversified, maybe four in the stock only. Then I got approached by uh, mutual fund companies to say, hey, let's roll this out as a trend following stocks only. And then I was like, well, you know, it can get pretty nasty. It's, gonna, it's going to have a pretty material drawdown. And they were like, no, 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 full speed ahead. I was like, let's add some gold or some interest rates or something we can, and then of course, the drawdown happened before the mutual fund broke escrow and they canceled the whole thing. <laughs> so I told them, you know, it's just not uh, that safe to uh, not avail yourself of maximum diversification. And it's just uh, kind of frustrating a lot of the time that you just don't have the shorts. You know, it'd be great if I could figure a way to have more shorts on during a bull market. We're kind of goofy that we're trying to find more shorts. We'd like to have less risk. I'd like to be short some equities, short some currencies, 
short some grains because we don't know, only in hindsight do we know that these are monster trends are going to keep going and we're going to be very happy to, to have uh, a position pretty much one way in those sectors. So now stay away from uh, anything only, interest rates only, stocks only, commodities only, bonds only. Yeah, no, I, th I think you're absolutely right. And I think this year as well, maybe some of the return dispersion we've seen in uh, managers, between managers this year, has also been maybe a factor of not just trend speed, but also um, number of markets that's traded. I mean, as, as you said, Moritz, your best market is not one of the kind of mainstream futures markets that um, all managers trade. I mean, iron ore is, is, is definitely... Uh, up and coming, but I don't think it's quite made it into all trend-following portfolios. So, so that side of things are also is also quite important in terms of of the differences between managers. But I did hear something that I thought was interesting, and that is, of course, when you weigh up the pros and the cons, and maybe you have a few thoughts on that as well. If you go into quote unquote really alternative markets, and let's just say for argument's sake that they are somewhat less liquid than the classical ones. Does that affect your decision or, or does your research suggest that because of less liquidity, either you have to have, you can trade smaller, of course, you have to have less of it, or you have to slow your systems down? No. I mean, I think it reminds me of, um, I thought you were going to ask a slightly different question, but because uh, okay. there's, <laughs> there's a lot of information out there. <laughs> I really enjoyed your floor and court podcast sure. and then the, yeah, the exotic talk, markets yeah. and then part of that i don't know if we've discussed this but part of that uh and then some of the other large ctas have these exotic markets they've rolled them out uh separate products and uh they insinuate that well you know these are just better markets and uh they, there's not as much activity and people are looking at them uh not many people are looking at them in the the, the uh, u.s markets the european tried and true futures, they're corrupted. They're no longer that great. Too many people are trading them. And so in the same way that I pay no attention to usually the less than great performance of my systems, I pay no attention to these markets that are have been around for 100 years or 50 years and just want to trade only exotic markets. I don't think I believe in that. I don't think there's math to back it up. So... I do think that, you know, if you're trading uh, milk and oats and some of these other markets that I refuse to mention anymore because I trade them and it, um, I mean, basically I got Moritz's approval on most of these and he told me it was fine, so I went ahead and did it. But uh, yeah, you trade them small and, and take all day to do the trade. Any thoughts on your side, Moritz? I do not want to throw the established markets out of the portfolio like Jerry. And I'm not sure if I can fully back up the point that, you know, a lot of people say those newer markets or the markets that have been under the radar for the larger CTAs, iron ore, for instance, right, which trades in Singapore, uh, the onshore Chinese markets, uh, some of the smaller markets even in the U.S. like canola, sorry, canola is in Canada, but say, say oats and lumber and, you know, these type of markets. <clears throat> Uh, people say that there are better trends uh, there, and that's because um, those markets are less noisy because there's less participation, there are less arbitrage and all of that. I, what I can see is that they have good trends. Um, the reason as to why that is, I don't really know whether that is uh, participation, noisiness, whatever the driving factors may be. But also, you know what, it doesn't really matter. 
It really doesn't matter. The, the only thing that matters is, can you trade these markets? Can you access them? Um, are they liquid enough for your portfolio size? And do they have a diversification benefit to your portfolio? If you can answer these questions positively, then I think as a trend-following trader, in the same way with Bitcoin, you go ahead and take those trades because they make your portfolio better. They make your portfolio more robust. Now, if you run a fund that says, I'm doing alternative markets only and no S&P and no T-nodes and no Bund and no Euro-US dollar, then honestly, I don't think that this is going to be better I don't think it can be better long-term than a CTA trend-following fund that trades all the markets, all the, the newer markets, and also the established markets. Like in recent years, right? Remember, it wasn't an easy time for CTAs. If you wanted to go out and sell a trend-following program, first of all, fee compression, fees come down. You know, show me how you are profitable. Show me how you are different. Where are you different than this other guy, right? And it's sometimes very, very difficult difficult to actually make the point and say, look, I, I am a better trend follower than the next guy. I, I don't do that because I can say that, you know, next year you may have a substantially better performance than me, or I may have a substantially better performance than you. Over the long run, we'll probably all be doing something that is in the same ballpark, but it's very difficult to really, you know, say this guy, this is the one the only best trend-following firm, and none of the other ones are as good. I don't think you can do that. But of course, you can make a differentiating point to institutional investors and say, hey, 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 I am different because I am not trading Tino's, I'm not trading Euro Solar, I'm not trading Swiss francs, I'm not trading the S&P. I'm only trading power, emissions, China futures, iron ore, canola, and, and you don't get that with all the other guys. I have limited capacities. It stops at, I don't know, 600 million. Yes, of course, I mean, that is different. But that now we're all of a sudden commingling, once again, business decisions, marketing decisions. You know, how do you position your firm in order to attract assets, which is not the same as good trading. If you want to build the best portfolio, your the, the best shot at your portfolio, to me, includes all of those markets. I, I don't see why I would be excluding T-notes only because they have been around for decades. Still great. You've got to come up yeah. with this. I agree so much with that. It's such a great topic. But you've got to come up with this reason. Oh, those markets that uh, Chesapeake, oh, no, done. Oh, they're corrupted. They're no longer any good. I mean, there's, it's crazy. And then there was uh, a article I tweeted this morning from Bear Bloomberg that Florin Court trades 350 markets. And no, nothing... U.S., nothing Europe, nothing mainstream. 350. Where are these 350 markets? <laughs> I can't get 350 if you add in all the markets that I currently trade. So uh, it's, yeah, it's, you know, it's easy to get uptight. And I do get uptight about, just shake my head about, come on, man, is this marketing or are we actually talking about legit trading? I think it is marketing and I'm I'm scratching my head. You you don't only read that from Florian Cord. And by the way, this is not a critique. Everybody, you know, does their business. I think they're doing good business. So but you read the same from Systematica, you read the same from AHL to a certain extent, where they say, you know, we're now trading 300, 400 markets. And, you know, I really look at that stuff. And when I count the futures markets that are available for me to trade. I get nowhere near 300. So, okay, so let's look at the OTC stuff. 
you can get a bunch of currencies, right? You can now trade the Colombian peso against the Israeli shekel and the Hungarian forint against uh, the Taiwanese dollar if this is what you want to do. And yes, I do think, by the way, that this is a great idea to get some more diversification and move away from a dollar complex in the currencies. Not that much, actually, but there's something there. Okay, so fine, you know, add those markets. But you know, there's there's now a multiple of different currency pairs that you can trade. But if you put them all together, you're triangulating the thing and you're not really gaining anything. So if you add, say, you know, 10 more currencies, then that's probably that. There's not more to do. Okay, what else is there? Then you have some OTC interest rate markets. So you can trade interest rate swaps of different maturities and in different uh, in, in different countries, different currencies, uh, cross-currency swaps. But, but so you add all that stuff together. Um, I'm still not at 200. And they're saying they're trading, you know, 350 or 400. So really the only way I can kind of like make that leap and kind of like go there is, okay, we're now really talking a lot of these synthetics, right? Where you're, you're spreading one thing against another, you're creating. And and I'm, I'm again, I, I don't want to say that is bad, you know, but I can really only see that this is where you get those number of markets from. And if you are an educated investor on a due diligence, you would probably ask that CTA, so what are those markets? And they will probably say, well, you know, they're not natural markets. They are synthetic markets. We're creating them because we're spreading soybeans against uh, JGBs or whatever the case may be, right? Um, but again, the, the, the point there is, you know, how much benefit does your portfolio get from that market? Yeah, you know, I, I, I can get a lot of benefit from trading long and short outright naturally existing markets um, that have enough liquidity that, you know, are adequate for my portfolio. But with all these spready things, they may actually take some of the positions off that I have in the natural markets, right? So if I'm long the spread of JGBs versus soybeans, because that spread moves, but I'm short JGBs because the trend JGBs is down, then all of a sudden I have a flat position of JGBs. Well... I don't know. It is a lot of marketing, I think. And again, good trading, good portfolio composition, good portfolio structuring, good position sizing is a different thing than business decisions around the CTA management. And when it comes to marketing, it's not always a question of how different are you, but rather how are you different? And I think that is a slightly different question. Now, before we wrap up, let me just quickly throw some positive numbers at you and at everyone else because the CTA industry is having a good month in December. Up almost 3% for the BTOP50 index, up almost 4% for the year now. Sogen CTA index up almost 4% for December, up one5 for the year. Sogen trend index up 4.5% for December, up 4.2% for the year. And the Sogen short-term traders index up almost 1% for the year, uh, sorry, for the month and up 3.3%. So the trend and the short-term traders index have now swapped places, so to speak, even though short-term traders index did much better early on in the year. And for those who follow the risk premium strategies, that's pretty flat. The SockGen Multi at Alternative Risk Premium Index is pretty flat in December and down 15.5% for the year. So before we uh, stop, for uh, our conversation today, which might actually be the last one this year. We'll see. Maybe I'll post some some summaries to um, for next week because I think Morris and I are 
certainly taking a break from the usual format. But, Jerry, since you uh, were on last, we started to uh, come up with some good content or some good podcast or white papers that we've been exposed to in the last week that we could share with our community that they might want to go and and check out. And uh, I don't know if you were aware of this. Uh, Otherwise, I'll give you a few seconds to think about something. And Moritz, maybe you want to Share if there's anything that caught your attention this week. I've got a couple of things that caught my attention. So this time I am a little bit better prepared than sometimes. But anyways, Moritz, did you pick up something good this week? I think you need to give it a go. There's one thing. I I, I just downloaded a podcast this morning called Hidden Forces for the first time. And I'm into the first 15 minutes. I think it's a a good podcast from the first 15 minutes. It's really a great show. So... um, it's, you know, interviews okay. some of the most brilliant minds, science, so, technology, finance. So it's across the board, but hidden forces, okay. I think I like. Cool. Yeah, I mean, for me, it was actually two episodes and two of the recent episodes uh, on Eric Townsend's podcast, Macro Voices, because he had Dr. Pippa Melmgren on a couple of weeks ago, and she's a former White House uh, advisor, and she talked a lot about um, what's going on right now and, and also what... She believes, and she's been saying this for a while, what uh, Donald Trump might do next. Um, so I thought that was interesting. And then if, and then he had this week, I think he had Kyle Bass on, um, successful hedge fund manager, Kyle Bass. Um, and, um, and they had very wide-ranging conversation about markets and so on, so, including Bitcoin, by the way. So those were the t- two episodes that caught my attention. What about you, Jerry? Have you listened or read anything exciting at the last period of time of course um i want to kind of break the rules a little bit but honestly as i said to begin i just have really enjoyed some of the podcasts that uh, you and moritz did and in particular there were two i wanted to mention briefly and the parts that i really liked mm-hmm. author jack really enjoyed that one in the book and um, I'm disappointed that there's only one systematic trader amongst these new wizards. But I was pretty, I thought I was pretty laughing. I, I laughed and I was really enjoying you were trying to push back on uh, the luck that it seems like that uh, some of these people got awfully lucky, of course. And then uh, the whole idea that um, it's okay if they blow out. You know, uh, you've expressed some skepticism, Niels, about they can blow out, but now they're back. And so the rest of us don't really have that luxury. Right. And then, oh, I was very excited about the Mark last week. That was uh, Mark. He's really good. I quote him and tweet his articles a lot, his blog, and uh, really enjoyed, once again, Niels hit, hit the ball out of the park with uh, trend following being your favorite store of value. And you can imagine I was just jumping up and down, how much fun that was. Uh, and I tweeted, uh, taunted you and Moritz, and you didn't return the fire of, didn't one of your guests say that uh, you should put all of your money into trend following? Exactly. And I guess that's not exactly what you were saying. It's uh, gold's okay, Bitcoin's okay, but maybe the best store of value is diversified trend following. So I really, really enjoyed that. And so you guys are doing a good job. I, I really having fun on Monday mornings listening to the podcast. Well, we'll certainly uh, try and keep it up. We may make some changes for the new year. I think um, that's something Moritz and I have been uh, discussing. So uh, there might be some some new things or a new, slightly new format to to the way we do things. But we'll come back 
with more on that, of course. And also, I just want to say before we wrap up that I know that time is a great unrenewable resource and that you listening to us lend us an hour or two each week to keep up up with the podcast, to learn, to fail, and to get up with us and to walk together on this journey of figuring out how to best trade and invest in an uncertain and sometimes crazy world. And for that, of course, we are always incredibly grateful. Any last thoughts, Moritz, Jerry, before we wrap up? Well, I uh, I think those episodes with uh, Jerry on, I, they're, they're just great. I hope we could do that more often. But um, it's really good fun, really good talking, really good perspective. So um, I appreciate it a lot, Jerry. It's a good close to the year for our show. So uh, we'll hope to see you again, hear you again, hear and see you again next year. Yeah, I agree. Well, I wanted to say something earlier. It's kind of funny because uh, just a, the different perspective I have these now that uh, unfortunately, or, you know, I have a good lifestyle. So uh, the majority of the money that I manage is my own money. And I remember over the years coming into December and like, oh, man, we're, we're killing it. You know, I'm going to have this uh, incentive fee 1231 that I can't give back. And now as an investor, I feel like the clients now, what do you mean you can't give it back? I can give it back all in January, February, <laughs> March. So, uh, you know, hopefully I'll print a good number for, uh, as you said, this meaningless annual number uh, in 2020. But uh, just remember that mine is actually profits and not incentive fees. So I, I could lose it all back. And, uh, you know, I really like this money. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, no, I concur with uh, everything and it is uh, it is always a lot of fun and very insightful to have you on. So maybe I'll twist your arm a little bit, Jerry, next year to be on a little bit more frequent. We'll see. On that note, we're going to wrap up this week's conversation and uh, we hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, we would be ever so grateful if you would head over to iTunes and leave a rating and review so that more people can find the podcast. And make sure you send your questions through to info at toptradersonplug.com. We'll do our best to uh, answer them as soon as uh, we can. And of course, you can follow all the three of us on Twitter. From Jerry. Moritz and me. Thanks so much for listening and we look forward to being back with you next year and uh, perhaps even next week. In the meantime, be well, stay safe and happy holidays. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.